Hey, good morning. Uh, man, so glad you got to hear from Dusty. Uh, if you don't know, he's one of our missionary partners at our church as well. And so uh, part of all of our offerings, whatever you do, uh, we give part of that to them to help support them. His wife, Kristen's on our staff, uh, does bookkeeping for us. So uh, I'm glad you got to meet, meet him. Uh, I'm going to have a word of prayer, and I'll share with you what's on my heart this morning. Uh, Lord, thank you again so much for these beautiful folks. And uh, man, what a high honor it is today to be able to share with them. And um, Lord, uh, I, I, I just pray that you would make us more like you. Um, in a big way or a small way, make us more like you. Uh, we didn't come to hear any person. We didn't come to hear from a personality. Uh, we want to hear from you. And so, Lord, if you choose to use my words or not, uh, you speak directly to our hearts today because uh, we know you can do that. Uh, many of us came in today, Lord, <clears throat> and we're carrying special burdens for a person or for a family situation or a fear, anxiety, worry. And I pray that even right now uh, we could place that before your throne and set it aside and ask you, Lord, to speak. Just speak to us, as, and, and we'll listen. And, uh, and I, I pray for someone that may be here that don't know you yet. Uh, maybe this will be the day that they will decide, you know what, uh, this is worth spending a life on. So have your way in the next few moments, I ask in your name. Amen. Uh, in this uh, value series, this is the last one uh, of our particular series, and I do these every three to four. I've been doing the last three or four years, I guess, uh, kind of been doing the value series, which basically means uh, all my sermons are already written. I just got to tweak them a little bit so you don't know I'm giving you the same sermon I gave you last year. And so that works out great for me. And then you're like, wow, Tom, I never heard that before. Yes, you did last year. But anyway, uh, this is the last one of those, and uh, they're actually not on repeat. The reason I keep doing them is these values are plastered throughout the pages of Scripture, and you think, well, Tom, if we did it once, why do you keep retelling me this? Well, I'll tell you why. Because I think every one of us is susceptible to something called mission drift. Mission drift. I think that's part of, every, of all of our lives. So what I mean by mission drift is this. An organization or a team or a department or a marriage or a family all start out of these gate, out of the gate with these fresh ideas and excitement and enthusiasm and idealism and all that kind of stuff, and usually very little money. But then as things develop, teams and organizations and corporations and marriages and families and churches can drift away from the mission they had such deep convictions about when they first got started. All of us are susceptible to this, and I'll illustrate this for you in this way. Do you remember what you were like as a teenager? Now, look down at your body, and you get some idea of what I mean by mission drift, okay? We kind of kind of lose some different priorities and all that kind of stuff. I, and so I think all of us can, kinda, can, can get that. <clears throat> but my point for this is that nobody st- embarks on something and says, well, I hope one day we'll get away from why we started this thing. Nobody begins a marriage and thinks, one day I hope this crashes and burns on the rocks of divorce. Nobody does that. Nobody says, I want to be part of that organization, and then hopefully the organization will eventually fall apart. And, and, and nobody does that. So churches don't do that either. But because of little things that happen, organizations can drift. So like little kind of neglect or little adjustments or little ideas or different leadership and, and all these things change. So the things that we end up value, valuing highly in the beginning drift away. And they're replaced by other things that creep in. One of the big things in churches is churches can get so busy. And then they ask their people to get so busy and the next thing you know, man, the, the whole thing has drifted from what we started it to be. So the organization, the marriage, the team, the family, the relationship becomes something different than what it started out to be. 
Now, Alive is on this growth trajectory. We have been for the last 14 years. And all kinds of people joining the desire to be part of Alive. In fact, the third service today, we're taking in a mess of new members. I'm excited about that. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to do our best to avoid mission drift. And that's why we not only do this value series each year, but why whenever we do the discovery class, we go through these values again. Because I just want people to know, here's where we are. These are the decisions we make. And that when we all get around the table and have to make a decision about the church or about a ministry that we're doing or not doing or an event, we sit there with those values and think, oh, is this, is this going to help us reach those values? But it's more than just this church that we're talking about when we say these values. It's more than just what the organization that is alive, if you choose to identify with alive or not. What we really hope is that we will find brothers and sisters who will do life with these same, this same set of values. So that when you connect with Tom and you go out to Tom and Lisa's house or you come out to eat with us or vice versa, we know uh, these people are kind of doing life on the same values I am. These people are holding in high regard the same thing I'm holding in high regard so that we can kind of encourage one another along. So it's not just the values of a church, but the values of the individual. And that's kind of what this whole thing is about. So whatever we do as a church, these values have to stay in place. And that's why we do it every year. So the first value is biblical authority. And that basically means this. We think the Bible's God's voice. And we're not going to bow down on that. We're not going to back down. It's not going to change. If somewhere along the way I disagree with what the Bible says, I'm wrong. And the Bible's the way we're going to go. And so that's kind of what we say. say, well, Tom, that's kind of narrow-minded. Well, if that's what biblical authority means, then I guess we are. I don't know. But I don't think it is. But I do believe that the Bible has authority. And that's what our church believes. The other one we believe is relational intimacy, and that is everybody and anybody can have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and through that personal relationship, that's where you will be restored to what God created you for and who God created you to be. We believe in authentic community, and that's this. We're a Me Too church, and what we mean by that is this. All of us have lived our lives messed up. All of us know what it is to have a messed up life, but the difference is that we've met Jesus. And Jesus is doing a work in us. And so we're not, we're not trying to be plastic people. We're not trying to pretend like we've never hurt and all of our lives are hunky-dory. That's not what we're doing. What we're saying is, I'm a real person. I've messed up my life, but God is redeeming me. And what will happen is God will use you and use me in your life to help teach and guide us into a full life. Then this other value is this, gifted service. Like when God gave you like your ears and your nose and your hair or lack of hair, whatever he did, you know, when he did all that... He also gave you gifts. He did. Everybody got them. Even, even you. Everybody got spiritual gifts. And, uh, and his purpose for those gifts was that you would use it in being part of building his kingdom. That's why you have those gifts. That's why I have my gifts. And then lastly, last week, we talked about excellent environments. Alive is intentional and laser-focused on creating environments where it is easy for people to bump into Jesus. So I got back into town. I've been out of town all week. I got back in on Friday. And one of the first things I was asked to do was to tour the building and make some decisions and all that kind of stuff. And I, I missed last Sunday night because of illness. And so I was able to go through and read all of the different things people had written on, those, on the beams and, and all that kind of stuff. And it was just kind of a cool moment. But I got to thinking, when I was standing in the middle of that, I was looking at all the activity going on. I was so proud of you. I was so proud of this church because you're putting your money where your mouth is. 
I mean, we do believe in excellent environments. And in a few weeks or a few months, I'm sorry, when we open the doors and let your little minions run in there and take over the whole place and tear it to pieces, and we all stand and watch and laugh and smile, you remember this value. That's why we did it. And when your kid leaves here and they say, can we come back next Sunday? You remember this value. That's why we're doing this value. Uh, One thing Justine said was like, uh, this was so cool. Our consultants came in and said, hey, Tom, um, your church, like on average, a church of like this. Okay. So everybody who gives, so they they say people that give $200 or more to a church, they, they do all these number stuff. So everybody gives $200 or more to a church. Out of those people, usually 70% is a good number when you're doing a building project like this that would get engaged. Our church is at 84% uh, engaged in that thing. And what I said to him, I said, we're headed for 100. <laughs> I said, we're going to do 100% uh, because this church gets it. So I hope if you are like, you know, two, give $200 a year of the church, take five bucks and put on there uh, for the building, hope grows here, and then I'll get free lunch out of it. So that'd be wonderful if you do that. That'd be great. And uh, that'd be great. If you, and if you do that, I'll tell you what, if we get to the 100% mark, uh, I will plan on something special, one of my special treats, just for you people, okay? Just for you. I don't know. Could be anything. Could be donuts, tater tots. I don't know. Could be anything. That'll just keep you awake at night. So, so anyway, last week, I asked you a question, and my question was this. Why do you people go to church? I asked them, you know, why, why are we going to church? And I think there are a whole lot of responses to that question, but they're all the same idea. For whatever reason, not the same, people are looking for something good in their lives. We are. We're all looking for something good, something that might make my life a little better. Uh, last night I was in bed, and, but this morning I got up and I got a text from somebody who had texted me after I had gone to be with the Lord for like eight hours, you know, <laughs> and I woke up this morning and I read, and the text was, uh, he'd, he'd watched the message from last week, if you'd missed, and uh, last week we talked about what, looking for something good, and his text was, thank you, thank you alive for being a place where I could find something good, something good, something better for my life. And last week we used the first part of Psalm 23, uh, uh, verse 6, the last verse. Uh, and Psalm 23 has kind of been this roadmap for the entire series to look at this value. So, so today I'm going to end this whole value series by looking at the last part of the last verse. So here's Psalm 23, verse 6. Okay, here's, here's how this verse goes. Surely goodness and mercy, talked about last, that last week, shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. And so I want to look at those two words that I have highlighted there and hopefully with God's help be able to kind of share some profound meaning on it. This first word here, dwell, in Hebrew it's pronounced shub. You want to say it with me? One, two, three. Shub. I think I will go to my shub. But anyway, anyway, you can use it whatever you want, so I'm pretty sure that's not how. But anyway, so shub is the, is the, is the Hebrew word, and um, it actually means this. It carries an idea of, of returning. So let me explain this to you. What the word is saying is David is saying, I will return. I will return to remain, if you will. I will return to remain to the house in the house of my strong king last week. Surely goodness and mercies are following the week before I will sit at the, at, the, at the banquet table of my king to return to the strong king. So I will return. This word shub involves staying or abiding in that house. So what David is saying, I will return to remain. Then this word house, I went and looked this up as well. And guess what? This word house, it, 
It means house. That, that's really all it means, it's just house. I mean, I tried to bring something amazing out of it, but there really wasn't anything. It just means house. That's what it means. So let me put all this in, in perspective, okay? David is saying, David is saying, I am returning to remain in a place where my family lives together. So David is speaking of returning to the place where he is family. Now, this is a beautiful picture here. Especially if you summarize the progression of David's concept of God through these first six verses of this psalm. Because David started out the psalm and he said, The Lord, all caps, remember? Yahweh, Jehovah, kind of hold something totally other than me. So holy, that word, you didn't even say it out loud. And when you wrote it with the pen, the scribes did, they would change the quill and use a new quill to continue writing because that word was held in such high regard. David said, the Lord, but then he compared it and and paired it with something that had never been done before. He said, the Lord is my shepherd. So Yahweh, Jehovah, something more powerful and other than me, tends and cares for me. He shepherds me. Calm and quiet. Waters and pastures. And then as the psalm progressed, he says, He is my strong king. And he allows me to sit at his table. And he allows me to sit at his table even though, he says, I am surrounded by enemies. I'm surrounded surrounded by evil. I sit in the presence of my strong king. And my strong king says to evil, you can't touch this. David's concept of God is growing. Lord, all caps. Shepherd, my strong king, he invites me to sit at his table. But now in verse 6. David is family. It's the most intimate of relationships. The Lord, Yahweh, shepherd, king, wants me to live with him in his house forever. So now allow me a bit of conjecture here. Um, and I'm in, I'm in a dangerous area, just to let you know, because anytime I try to take today and our culture and our understanding and, and shoot it back there on David, that's always dangerous. And so I could be way out of base, way off base here. If I am, uh, just forget this part of the sermon and go to the, le- to the next part, okay? But anyway, so let me just tell you what I'm thinking here. David, of all people, understood a dysfunctional family. In fact, what I'm trying to do is get to a little bit of the humanness of David and what I think is behind this because David writes this as a teenager, And David understood dysfunctional family because eventually he would lead a very dysfunctional family and he would be a very dysfunctional father. Where did that come from? I would suggest it came from the home he grew up in because the home he grew up in was jacked up as well. And I got one example of this I'll share with you. Um, Samuel is God's prophet. So in the Old Testament, God would use men and women and they would speak directly to the people. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit came, so I know God speaks directly to all of us. But in the Old Testament, that wasn't the case. The Holy Spirit used different people. So Samuel was God's prophet, and he was used to speak to the people of Israel. God says to Samuel, go and anoint the next king of Israel. The first king is Saul. I want you to anoint the next one. Now, one thing they knew is the next king would come from the line of Jesse. It was from 
Jesse's family. So Samuel goes to Jesse's house, and Jesse says, I'm here to anoint the next king. So what Jesse does is he lines up his sons, and he marches them in front of, of Samuel the prophet. And first comes the first son, and he's like a stud, man. He's, a, he's beautiful, and he's strong, and he's big, you know, and all that kind of stuff, cleanse the fan. I mean, he's just an amazing guy, you know. And so uh, he says, you know, Jesse says, here's the dude. And, and Samuel says, nope, that's not the dude. God, God says, not the dude. So he says, well, Jesse says, no problem, I got another one. So he brings another, another son out and stands him in front. Jesse says, that's not the dude either. Does it seven different times. Not the dude. Not the dude. Finally, Samuel, when all the sons have gone through, Samuel turns to Jesse. You got any more kids? Any more sons? And it's almost like Jesse forgets. He's like, oh, there is that one. He's out there watching the sheep right now. He's watching the sheep so we can actually have this meeting here. And Jesse says, or Samuel says, go get him. And so they go and get David, who's been out there watching the sheep, writing psalms and playing the harp. And they bring Jesse and stand in front and, you know, there's like a teenager stance, you know. You know, I kind of bow. And Jesse Samuel says, that's the one. That's the guy. This is the one that's going to be the next great king of Israel. I wonder how some of those family dynamics impacted David, not only as a king, but as a poet, as a person writing the scripture. I wonder how being the youngest and all that entailed affected him. The youngest in the line of a credible, strong-looking group of guys, and then there's David. And he ends this beautiful psalm with what I think he ends up longing for his entire life. And this is, and here's God say to him, David, I want you to be my son. I want you to return to sit down, to dwell with me in my house, and I will be your father forever. Who doesn't want that, really? I'm not saying we all had great dads. I'm not trying to say, I'm just saying, but isn't that a good place to be? I think we all get it. Let me take you all back, some of you back a long time. Do y'all remember elementary school? Some of you are like, no, I don't remember it. You know, but anyway, let's, let's go back to elementary school. So when I grew up in elementary school, we were allowed to like, have fun. And so we could play kickball. I don't know if you're still allowed to play kickball or not. I don't know if you're allowed that or not. But we could because there was nothing better than beating somebody in the head with a ball to get them out. It was just an amazing thing. It was wonderful. Now you get a parent that sends a note home. But anyway, we had kickball. And when we went out to kickball, uh, you, you kind of chose up teams. Do you all remember this at all? Come on, tell me I'm not alone. So you're, you chose up teams. So what we did is you usually pick the two best in the class. Some kind of a guy, girl, two guys, two girls, whatever. And they would pick their teams, right? And so they had the like alpha male, alpha female, whatever it was. They would sit there. And then the rest of us kind of dorks would stand here and kind of hope we got picked. <laughs> and what we really hoped when the whole picking process went, nobody wanted to be the last one picked. Do you remember? <laughs> you know, like, nobody wanted to be the... I guess I'll take him. You know, I mean, that, that kind of moment, you didn't want to do that. And I remember, you remember you kind of, the way you felt. How about this? Do you remember when the, the prom was taking place and you didn't have a date yet, but everyone else seemed to have their date? You're like, oh, man. Hey, Mom, are you free? Uh, you know, you don't know, you know what you're going to do. And then, then how about this? You know, coming out of school and then, all your buddies are getting selected to the colleges they want to go to, but you haven't heard anything. You're still waiting. And, and then it goes into adulthood, and someone gets hired for the job you wanted, or, or someone else seems to be living the dream, and you're not, or maybe you desperately want someone to do life with, but God hasn't opened that door yet, and you know all those kinds of things. And, and we play these things off like they don't matter to us, but you know what? They really do. 
And it hurts. And it, and it can actually impact not just how we feel about ourselves, but this is the point. It can impact how we think about God. And some of you wrestle with this all the time. And it's this. If God is all-knowing, he certainly wouldn't pick me to be on his kickball team. If God's all-knowing, he wouldn't pick me to be on his team because of what I did last night or last year. He wouldn't choose me. And the reason he wouldn't choose me is because I probably wouldn't choose me either. And we bring that into our relationship with God. And I see a little bit of that in David. I'm out here watching his sheep, and all my brothers are back there trying to find the next king of Israel. I'm over here watching sheep. We're not the only ones that wrestle with that. Jesus is walking by the River Jordan. The River Jordan, a few weeks earlier, he was baptized in the River Jordan by his cousin, John the Baptist. John the Baptist is there preaching this message on repentance. He says, rethink how you think about everything because the Son of God has come. And John the Baptist, man, he, he's a weird dude. He has these two disciples that are with him, Andrew and John. And this is kind of this whole dynamic because it was common in that culture for young boys to find a rabbi and kind of hook onto that rabbi and let that rabbi teach them about life and about Scripture and about God. Well, John the Baptist was not your average rabbi. I mean, the dude wore camel hair clothing. He ate bugs. He lived in the wilderness, all in the Bible. You can read it for yourself. And so not many people would say, hey, would you be our rabbi? So the way I think about it, when I think about Andrew and John following John the Baptist, it's basically this. We got rejected students following a rejected rabbi. Jesus walks by and sees this. So the next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples. And as he watched, Jesus, and as he watched, Jesus walked by. John the Baptist exclaimed, look. Here's the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. When you are writing that in your scripture, you can put the word stalked there. You can put the word, and I'll prove it to you in a minute, but they, they weren't like, oh, let's go follow Jesus and be with him. They were like, that kind of stalking like this. And I'll prove it to you with the next verse. Jesus turned and saw them following. So it wasn't like, hey, Jesus, can we follow you? It was more like, you know, that kind of moment, then he followed a bit more, and then he followed. So Jesus turned, and he says, the solemn follow him, says, what are you people looking for? You're creeping me out. That's a loose translation, but that's kind of what they were thinking. And they said to him, Rabbi, teacher, where are you staying? Ready? That word? It's the exact same word in Greek as the Hebrew shub, to dwell. Jesus, where are you returning? Where were you, are you returning to remain? Where are you dwelling? Where are you abiding, living, and sitting down? See, what these two rejected students were asking was really this. Jesus, can we be with you? Jesus, can we have a sleepover that never ends? Now, what I marvel at in this story from here forward are the two responses to that question, can we be with you? Jesus is is the one who first responds, hey, where are you staying? Jesus doesn't kind of say, well, you have to say a magic prayer, jump through some hoops, do a little spiritual hokey pokey, and then get some sanctification dust, and then maybe, just maybe, you'll be able to follow me. All he does is he issues an invitation. He said to them, I don't know, 
Come and see. Where are you staying? Where are you abiding? Where are you dwelling? Can we be with you? Come and see. No background check, no screening, no making sure that we're on the same page doctrinally, none of that. Nope. Just come and see. And you know what? They did that. And they stayed with Jesus for the rest of his life and the rest of their lives. And I think they're with Jesus today in eternity. They're still with Jesus, remaining, dwelling, shubing. But the other response I marvel at in this story is the one that I reason I bring all this to you today. It's how these two rejected disciples responded when Jesus said, come and see. Andrew, as soon as he says, come and see, as soon as he says, here's that, Andrew goes to tell his brother to come and see. You know who his brother was? Peter. The dude in Acts chapter 2 that stands up in the whole New Testament church's birth. The next day, continuing on the story, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip, and he said to him, follow me. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we found him about whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus, son of Joseph, from Nazareth. Now, Nathanael is this skeptical, cynical kind of dude, and so he plays his prejudice card. He said, Nazareth, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You know. But look at how Philip responds to doubt and skepticism. Nathaniel, Philip says, I don't know. Just come and see. Come and see. Jesus, can we follow you? Uh, come and see. Andrew says to Peter, you've got to come and see. Philip says to Nathaniel, Nathaniel, I don't know if I believe or not. Well, I've got to wrestle him to the ground. I've got to share with him apologetics. I've got to read a book. I've got to get him a book by C.S. Lewis or Lee Strobel. No, 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 no. Just come and see. And now, church, you're ready to hear value number six of our church. And it's this. We call it relational evangelism. And what we mean by it is this. We will intentionally leverage our influence in the world for the purpose of introducing people to the transforming love of Jesus Christ. That's it. Because of what Jesus has done for us, we believe the most loving thing we can do for others is invite them to come and see who Jesus really is so they can make up their own minds about Jesus and what might be possible for them. Jesus asked, what are you looking for? Andrew says, can we live with you? Jesus says, I don't know. Come and see. Andrew says to Peter, we found the dude. Come and see. Jesus says to Peter, I'm going to give you a brand new name. Philip, invited by Jesus to follow him. He goes to Nathaniel, we found the one. Philip says, I doubt it. Or Nathaniel says, I doubt it. So Philip says, well, come and see. Now here's what I want us to take away from this. The number one way that the love of Jesus Christ spreads is one person telling another person. And it is because of your relational collateral. That's why. Your friends may not trust Alive or any church for that matter. And I get it. I understand, don't you? Your friends may not trust Christian people because they got burnt or fried by somebody. Your friends may not trust pastors and they certainly don't trust Tom. But your friends and family do trust you. 
Come and see. Let me ask you to do something for me. Would you be willing to raise your hand? This is what I want you to raise. Would you raise your hand if your first introduction to Jesus Christ came through a person? Would you be willing to raise your hand right now and let me see? Come on. All, good and high so we'd all see. Yeah. The majority of us in the room. Some of us came through a church or pastor. That's because this is how the whole thing works. So in John chapter 9, the story is told of this dude who's blind from birth. I love this story. I've taught, taught it a couple times this year even. And uh, Jesus sees the man. You remember, he spits on the ground. I think it's one of the reasons I love this verse. It just seems so weird. Just, you know, spit. He makes some, some mud, and he wipes it on the guy's eyes. And the guy says, and he says to the guy, go and tell people, to go, tell, go jump in a ceremonial pool and wash off. The man does it. The blind man can now see. He's the seeing man. He's no longer the blind man. Now, he obeys not because he believes. He obeys. He does what Jesus says because he's desperate. His neighbors don't believe him. They think he's faking. And so they they ask him what happened. The man says the story, I was desperate. I was healed. Who did it? No idea. I never saw the guy. True story. Right? Right? The religious leaders get kind of ticked off about this because they heard a healing took place without them knowing about it. Isn't that just like bad church? But anyway, that's kind of, this, oh, why, why did that happen? And they ask him, and they actually bring his parents in, and they question him because this Jesus idea didn't fix, fit into their jacked-up concept of God. And so they say to the guy, who, the blind guy who can now see, all he did was do what he was told, went and jumped in a pool. Now they're asking him to be an expert. This guy must be of the devil. And the blind guy says to the religious leaders, I don't know whether or not he's a sinner. I have no idea. One thing I know, I once was blind, but now I'm seeing. I don't have it all figured out. I don't even know who Jesus is, but he changed my life. I know this one thing. I met this guy you call Jesus, and now my life is better. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, what I really love about this peering into this idea of Jesus, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, so Jesus went to find the guy after the religious leaders had thrown him out. He said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Look at this. I love it. The seeing man says, who is he? Isn't that beautiful? Is it just beautiful to me? Who are you talking about? Who is he? Tell me so that I can believe in him. Jesus said, look at this. This is awesome. You have now seen him. Look at that great. Did he use that right there? Because you can now see, dude. You have now seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking with you. The man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. What did he believe? Only this. Ready? Jesus made his life better. That's it. He didn't know anything about an incarnation or incantation and the difference between. He had no idea. All he knew was Jesus made life better for him. That's all he knew. And I hope we as a church, we as individuals, will all rest as we build on this value. Let me tell you something about your life. You are surrounded by people who are looking for a better life. 
You are. They're looking for life to the full. And you are not responsible to save them. You are not responsible for their salvation. That is God's job and only God's job and always God's job. But what we do is we invite people to come and see. Just come and see. God is good. God is love. God is personal. God is a heavenly father. You should come and see. I don't know if this is an exclusive list or not, but I think people are loved to Jesus in kind of one of two ways. Uh, First is when there's a change in a person. So a friend uh, was changed, and so they begin to ask what happened, or they see something different in our lives, and they trust their friends. So when they say, come and see, they go. This is what happened with the Andrew and Peter and Philip and Nathaniel. They didn't know Jesus from Adam, but they knew those brothers, and they knew their friends. And so when they made the invitation, say, I'll go, I'll go. All of them were friends who were changed because they trusted in the relational capital of their friendship. Oh, I don't know Jesus, Peter says, but I know you're my brother Andrew, so I'll go with you. Come and see. Peter ends up changing the world. Let me tell you something. There are people in your life right now that are watching you. There are people in your life who see an area of your life that they wish they had. Even though you and I know whatever it is they're seeing, you know, it's like it's not all like roses, whatever, but they see you. I wish I had that marriage. I wish I had that family. I wish I had that confidence. I wish I had that peace. I wish I had that purpose. There are people in your life right now that are looking at you. And they're just waiting for someone to say, come and see. I think that's one of the ways people come is they say, there's a change in that person. But here's the second one. Sometimes it's a change in a circumstance. People get loved to Jesus because of a change in a circumstance. See, all of us in life go through these seasons of life. And we get to walk with each other through some of them. You know, the parents are aging or the parents are dying or we're going through this situation or the kids or whatever. And sometimes these valleys are deep and dark this desperate season of life, and it causes us to reevaluate everything. I was talking with a friend this week, going through that season. Something rattled their cages. He said, you know, Tom, I can tell you this. This has caused me to look hard at all my priorities. And I said, of course it has, because you're normal. Of course it has. Like the blind man asking for money. Light was brought to a desperate situation, and he found Jesus. Jesus walks up, spits on the ground, rubs mud on his eyes, says, go jump in the pool without even knowing who the guy is. He says, I'll go. Jesus offers this opportunity to rethink how you think about everything, and you see things could be different. There are people in your life right now, people in my life, and they have been through a change in the circumstance, and that change in the circumstance may be the open door for them to come and see. What did Jesus say? Is repent and believe. Rethink how you think about everything. Who is Jesus? He's this only son of God. What did he do? He paid the price, death. Sacrifice for all sin. And three days later, he rose again, victorious over sin and death. What does he promise? Well, your sins can be forgiven. There's no longer condemnation, and he can restore your life. That's relational evangelism. And so for us, it goes like this. 
We will intentionally leverage our influence, ready, in my world. Your workplace, your family, your circumstance for the purpose of introducing people to the transforming love of Jesus Christ. I don't know why you get out of bed every day. But when that is a purpose for your day, that's the bomb diggity. That's the day. And then when you get a family member, you get someone in your sphere of influence, someone you work with, and they come and see, and all of a sudden they were blind, but now they see fully. Oh, mercy. You catch fire, and joy settles in because you're doing what you're created to do. Thank you, Lord, for being part of a church. Allow me to be part of a church that gets this. I'm so excited, Lord, that um, there isn't even resistance to this idea. The only resistance is what it would look like in our lives. And I pray you would lay people on our hearts even now, and probably already have, Lord, that could come and see. Hey, listen, I pray for my friends in the room that um, they're going through that circumstance change thing right now. And they've been through a lot of stuff, and um, their emotions are so strong Uh, You're maybe trying to catch up. You're just kind of reacting these days. And, you know, my encouragement to you and my encouragement to myself, when we're going through those things, just don't allow these things to make you bitter. But instead of running and being angry, throw yourself hard into God. Let God hold you. Everything I read in Scripture says He wants to be your Heavenly Father. He's inviting you to shub, (laughs) to dwell with him forever. He's inviting you to sit around the table of the strong king. He's the great shepherd who wants to tend and care for you, but you've got to let him lay aside your agenda, lay aside your fear, and let him. Listen, if you've never met Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, come on. Today's the day. Maybe you're here because someone said, I don't know, come and see. And as you've heard it proclaimed, you think, man, that's got to be real. And you want to join the rest of us and spend the rest of our lives, however many days we have, running after Jesus. And if that's you, just ask. You just ask God. You do it right from where you are, your own seat, your own words. Lord, I'm tired of living my life for myself. I want to live it for you. And you'll begin the journey where he will teach you what it means to follow him. May this church continue to be committed to the value of relational evangelism and may we continue to see a steady stream of freshly redeemed lives, people who come and see pouring through the front doors of our church and our new children's wing in order that your kingdom come in your name. Amen.